0: And welcome to the podcast of Farm and Fiddle, based on the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow. Farm and Fiddle airs on KOPN 89.5 FM in Mid-Missouri and KOPN.org on the World Wide Web. We are on the air from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Time, on this podcast, you'll hear parts of several programs from July 2022. The first part is an interview with Ryan Fielder, who is a music conservator at Shaker Village at Pleasant Hill near Harrodsburg, Kentucky. And the second part of this podcast is an interview with Gabe Francisco draft animal coordinator at Shaker Village. And the last part is an interview with Kitty Durham, who is a farm manager at Shaker Village, and we found her turning compost in the gardens. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hear those interviews. Thanks for listening.
1: My name is Ryan Fielder and I am a music interpreter at Shaker Village of Pleasant Hill.
0: And so how long have you been here?
1: I've been here going on three years in October. Okay,
0: so what's your job?
1: My job uh, initially is to study and transcribe um, and learn any of the Shaker hymns. So the Shakers really started writing out hymns with multiple lyrics in 1784 and so dating back to that is when I've started really transcribing any any of the 20,000 hymns almost that they've uh, written at this point.
0: Wow that's amazing so do you have any favorites?
1: I I have a favorite author for sure my favorite hymn writer is a woman Patsy Roberts Williamson which was one of the African-American Shakers of Pleasant Hill Um, She wrote many, many hymns and had a lot of choreography as well, Um, not only for the Shakers in their primary worship, but also very fun hymns that were primarily based towards the children of the villages as well. Um, And her variety is one thing that that makes me enjoy her hymns so much. Um, But there are many, many hymn writers and and hymns to choose from, but I would have to say many of hers are, are some of my favorites.
0: Well, let's talk about her for a minute, and then I do want to come back to the children because that's a fascinating part of this whole story. Mm. So tell me about her.
1: Patsy actually was an enslaved girl at the age of 13 when she came out to this village. Now her story is very, very deep, but, but just to scratch the surface, the family that brought her here was considering joining this village in 1813. They spent three years living amongst the Shakers, but never officially joined the village, never officially signing the covenant. And instead they would like to leave back out into America in 1816. And so they actually planned on leaving but they wanted extra money to hit the road and so their plan was to sell Patsy to Pleasant Hill and the Shakers. Hmm. The Shakers believe in gender and racial equality dating back to the 1740s and therefore they refused to purchase Patsy as a person. But they did very happily purchase her legal freedom instead, giving her the choice and opportunity to go live her life out in America or stay here and be a shaker. And that is what she chose to do, officially signing the covenant as soon as she turned 21, which was of age.
0: Wow. And do you know anything about, did she have a job here? How how did that work? How did they divvy things
1: up? They would change jobs unless you were a specialist in an area. If you were the village architect, you're not going to be changing jobs very often. But if you um, were a regular villager and you wanted to learn multiple skills, you would change jobs about every two to three weeks. That was not only so that you could gain experience and skills in different areas, but it was also so that if you had a job that you weren't too keen on, you didn't have to stay on it forever. You wouldn't get sick of it
0: wow that that is wonderful to hear
1: yeah it's kind of a nice concept
0: (laughs) that might be the best part of this whole Mm. of this whole scheme how many people were in this village when it was in you know its heyday
1: its heyday was definitely in 1823 and there were 491 officially signed shakers of the village. Now that official signature does not include the number of children that would have been in the village at the time, or the number of people that were still considering joining the village. There would have been five family dwellings, and two of those were four individuals that were still feeling it out, thinking about signing the covenant. Mm-hmm. So it would have been closer to almost maybe five or 600 individuals in the village but officially 491 ah. and actually more than 65 of those individuals at that time were african-american shakers as well
0: wow mm. and and i mean as far as we know i wish we could go back but everyone was treated equally
1: yes yes ah. that was one of their biggest things that is my personal favorite thing about them Um, One of the biggest reasons for the equality is because of one of their biggest belief differences in the Bible. So they are a Christian sect of people who read the King James version of the Bible, but instead of the Holy Trinity, they believe in something called duality or dualism, which is the idea that God is male and female qualities both in one single being in the same. And so because of this, you get gender and racial equality all.
0: My goodness. Did this move into politics for them?
1: Not very much. They didn't have very much association with the government or the state. Um they they were a non well, no, I'm sorry. We are a nonprofit, excuse me. Um <laughs> they they were a utopian society and a community of their own. And so when you would actually join this community, your things became everybody's things and everybody's things were your things. So this communal society was a little separate from the government and I think that was to their benefit as well. The most, the most would be, I would say, the ministry leaders. The ministry leaders were not necessarily ministers as much as they were the governing party and the recruitment party for each village. And that would also be two men and two women because of that equality. Mm they would actually be elders and eldresses who were highly respected from different villages. If one of these roles was needed, then a, one of those leaders from a different village would be requested upon to come and take on the ministry leadership position of maybe this village, so that they join this village unbiased in the first place. They were never supposed to form any bias over a single shaker over another, or a full family dwelling over another. So it would have been a little bit of a lonely leadership life, but it was a highly respected shaker position.
0: Hmm. So Ryan, where did they come from?
1: They came from Manchester, England, really, because they break off from the Quaker religion in the 1740s. Hmm. Primarily because of some of these belief differences. But they also just want more out of worship. The, the, The name shaker is a nickname given to them by people who are terrified of the way that they worship. They don't want to just sit, pray, and sing. They want to hoop and holler and jump and skip around. They bark like dogs, they speak in tongues, and they shake. And so guests that would observe this service would either love it and want to stake around and join in, or they run back into the town and they talk about these shakers. Mm. And so that's how the name really came about. And so for a number of years, it was quite derogatory, really they don't really start to accept it until about 1813 but they refer to themselves and each other as believers but even that is short for their full name which is kind of long but extremely descriptive they are the united society of believers in christ's second appearing
0: okay that sums it up (laughs) Okay. Now you mentioned children a couple of times and, um, as I understand it, they were celibate. Yes, they were. So, uh, where did these children come from?
1: Many of these children would have been orphans, Mm -hmm. but also full families would join these villages. Now, if you were, for example, a married couple with five children, if you sign the covenant and you have joined the village, Your things have become the villages, and your family kind of gets split up into just brothers and sisters in Christ. You and your spouse are put in separate family dwellings as to avoid temptation, and any and all of your children, as long as they are old enough not to be nursing anymore, will move into one of the children's quarters near one of your family dwellings, but they will be raised by you, but also the entire community. I like to say that these villages kind of started the phrase, it takes a village. (laughs) But, to be quite honest, dating back to the orphans especially, not only the orphans, but this would have been a safe haven for widows as well, because women can do work here. Women can take care of their children here, and in America that's not really the case. You have to go find another man in the 1800s, And, and here you are equal. So it was a safe haven for women, but... If I had a daughter in the 1800s, and I could not take care of her, and my options were an orphanage or a village like this one, I am 100% choosing to bring her here, because at an orphanage, she's watching boys get an education. She's watching boys learn trade skills and have fun. Here, every single child, no matter what race or gender, receives up to an 8th grade education in the 1800s just as well they go under a deacon or a deaconess depending on their maturity of age and they will actually go under them and learning multiple trade skills so that by the time they turn 21 which is of age to sign the covenant they can either join this village and be a great shaker benefiting the village or they're prepared to go into the world with an education with some skills and get a good footing and a good start in life but even if they don't like it out there they can come back. They can take that trial, join the village, the Shakers really have an overall understanding that you either have a calling to live as they do, be as they do, or you don't. And they don't shun the world, they don't look down on you for thinking otherwise, which is very different from many utopian societies in that time.
0: Yeah, you know, I've talked to other people, other uh, of your co-workers mm-hmm. here, and everybody is loves it so much, and, and I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um... Why did it why did it disappear? Why didn't people keep joining just because it's such it's utopian and it's yeah. you know you guys the sustainability
1: A lot of the reasoning obviously many people are going to to keep on going back to the celibacy the celibacy and I understand mm-hmm. that that does not help the longevity sure but the biggest impact for most of these villages in the US was the Industrial Revolution and that was simply because men specifically saw the opportunity that they can go get a job that makes them enough money to where they can get married they can have eight children and that paycheck is enough money to where they can take care of that whole family independently and so men of the villages specifically started to leave now these villages were always upheld by primarily women so the sisters of Pleasant Hill we're actually upholding this village about 65% throughout the history of this village. But after the Industrial Revolution, it is upheld by 85% women. Oh. And so the men are leaving because they see opportunity in the jobs in these factories. And all of the women stay because women can't go get these jobs. Women don't have the right to vote until 1920, which is just ridiculous. But because of that, The women stay here and uphold this village for the remainder. Unfortunately, not very many people are coming around, and for Pleasant Hill specifically, by 1910, every Shaker has either passed away or gone on and left into the world, and there are only 12 Shakers left, and they're elders in age. There are 10 women and 2 men, and they hadn't had a new convert in a couple years, and so Unfortunately, they actually only had 1,300 acres and 68 buildings remaining in that time. But that was still a little too much property for 12 elders. That is at the time that they reach out to a businessman from Harrodsburg named George Bohan. And he actually helps these shakers in their final years taking care of the property and these elders. And the deal that they made was that by the time that the last elder passes away from Pleasant Hill... Mr. Bohan gets to do with that 1,300 acres and 68 buildings, whatever he pleases. Mm. Which is quite a deal for that man. No doubt. And it very well may be your first reverse mortgage, but... um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um... The Shakers ended up actually outliving him. Because these people avoided cholera in Pleasant Hill, by the way. Um, Kind of on accident. But... They avoid childbirth for the most part obviously being celibate and they're a community that is very much helping itself helping each other because they're all self-sufficient as well and so hunger wasn't always a huge issue in this village when in america it really was Mm -hmm. Um, many many of these things add up to the fact that pleasant hills shakers had a 30 year longer life expectancy than the average american The average American was only about 45 years old in the 1800s, and the average Shaker was 75. Wow. And so uh, the Bohan children, Mr. Bohan's children, took care of the remaining elders until Mary Settles was the last uh, villager of of Pleasant Hill, and she passed in 1923. Mm -hmm. She was a wonderful woman. She actually, okay, not to get too off track, but one of my favorite quotes of her is right after she voted in 1920. She got the right to vote and so she took her journal with her because she wanted to write about the experience. And she wrote, it is just about time that the rest of America caught up to the equality and beliefs of the Shakers. Brilliant. I liked that a lot. That's great.
0: (laughs) Ryan, I've been to a couple of the gift shops. Maybe I've been to all the gift shops. Yeah. I haven't seen a book on the history of Pleasant Hill. Is there one?
1: There is one that I, I enjoy. It is a short read, but it is a good read. It is called Pleasant Hill and its Shakers. Okay. It is right in the Welcome Center over here, actually. Oh, they've got it, okay. Yes, they should have it. And, uh... If they don't, we might have one in another in another gift shop. But um, that is one that I enjoy and that I learned a good bit from because it doesn't just talk about this village here in Kentucky. It does date back to England and how they got started and Anne and Lee and everything about that. Um, and so that is one that I that I enjoy. There's there are many of these Shaker books that happen to be fiction. Uh-huh. I try. To stay away from those, <laughs> sure. But um, unfortunately, there are more there are more writers that will write fiction on the shakers than than nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. But that one is one that I enjoy.
0: Okay, I'm going to go look for that. Anything else we should know? What, what's one of your favorite stories? I've heard you tell so many stories now, and <laughs> I, I wonder, I wonder if you have something that you know you just like you just really love to get out there.
1: Well, you know boy there's there is a lot um i I could go on and on i would say that the shakers were some of the most innovative people in history and when i say that i mean unfortunately they were not a prideful people any idea any invention any hymn that was was thought up they say was blessed unto them by the Holy Spirit giving them this idea, giving them this blessing. And so there, are, in in my opinion, there are more than 20 American inventions that were actually Shaker invented, but they did not patent them. Hmm. And so somebody else has credit for it. Um, um,
0: what's an example?
1: One example would be the circular saw.
0: No. A
1: Shaker woman, a sister up in, I believe, one of the villages in New Hampshire. Uh-huh. Came up with the concept and the design for the circular saw, huh. and then a little less than ten years later, an American man found it and put his name on there. So, so
0: wow! So the circular saw—when um, would when would that have been?
1: That I believe that, that would have been in the eighteen forties, um, okay. and that would have been a, a pedal kind of system with pulleys. Uh-huh. They were masters of the pulley system. One of my favorite examples is the water house here at Shaker Village. The water house was built in 1830, and on the second story of that building is a 4,500-gallon barrel that sits on top of limestone pillars on the second story. Mm -hmm. It's the fourth rendition of that barrel because it had water sitting in it. And so it was always either 4,500 gallons or 5,000 gallons because that is what would sustain the village for 24 hours. Mm. Now, they had lead pipeline that lasted half a mile down to their clean running spring by 1830 and lead does not break down when you don't have chemicals in your water like we do today coming out of the tap so uh, coming out of your water at home you have phosphor or i'm sorry uh fluoride and chlorine coming out of there and coming from a spring it didn't have those and so the lead is completely safe so the lead will not break down um anyway They had that connected to that in 1830, but by 1833, they actually extended that pipeline to four out of the five family dwellings on this property and to a few of the workshops around those buildings, giving this village running water at the turn of a key by 1833, Hmm. which was actually the same year that the White House started getting running water inside of it. Wow. So the first... running water system in the US was in Cincinnati in 1822 but to my knowledge it lasted less than a month before it malfunctioned and they could never get it up and running again huh. then 11 years later this water house at Pleasant Hill was the first effective running water system in the US
0: wow that's awesome
1: hmm.
0: well thank you sir of i really course. appreciate your time yeah and, thank you um, gosh you've just given me so much information I don't I hardly know where to start well
1: I'm glad I sometimes I I go off on a tangent and I don't even remember the question you asked there's just so many things about about these people that that's why my tours are supposed to be 30 minutes but they'll be almost an hour I just have too much to say (laughs) (laughs) that's great
0: and that was an interview with Ryan Fielder, music conservator at Shaker Village at Pleasant Hill near Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Coming up is an interview with Gabe Francisco, farm animal coordinator, and Kitty Durham, farm manager at Shaker Hill. All these interviews were part of a road trip taken by Farm and Fiddle in July 2022 on KOPN Radio. Farm and Fiddle airs on KOPN 89.5 FM in Mid-Missouri and KOPN.org on the World Wide Web at 6 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday evenings. I'm Margot McMillan, and let's go to that interview with Gabe Francisco. And I just want to set the scene. We are in the barn at Shaker Village. It's an old barn, maybe 1940s. It's certainly newer than the Shakers, but uh, it's an old wooden barn, and there's a lot of uh, tobacco hanging from the rafters, a lot of leather tack around, horse tack. Uh, there's a great big draft horse that I'm standing next to the rump of, the end of. Uh, And Gabe is getting ready to hitch that to a wagon, so we can take a a wagon ride tour. Tell me your name.
2: My name is Gabe Francisco.
0: And um, what do you have a title here?
2: I'm the draft animal coordinator. Okay. So I run all the teams. I have two teams of oxen. One is my personal team that went to college with me. Oh. (laughs) And then I have uh, three teams of horses. None of them are personally mine, but I run them. I do all their nutrition every day. I do all they're working all they yeah everything
0: i don't want to get in your way oh no no no, I, no. Yeah, I
2: have plenty of time especially to, because i have the right team like i said this is a oh, 15 pound harness it oh. takes me all about 2 minutes to throw on if oh, it was awesome. a 50 <laughs> pound i'd be like Ugh, you know <laughs> so much but yeah ask me any questions i have all the
0: time okay well i yesterday when when we were when i was i'm going to get it at the head of these guys if that yeah, if, yeah, do yeah, you, you, you think good. that's wise yeah. Okay. That's what that's what I've always
2: learned. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> I say that I'm like yeah, I'm a big proponent of it, but I'm also like like these guys these are safe. shaker teams have had kids like crawling beneath them. That's what and I thought. Nothing like I've never seen them spook ever. So I'm like, if there is a bond first team of horses, and I don't I don't say that there's ever a bond first team, of those, right now, but there truly is one. Our shaker teams would be those horses. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So
0: yesterday you mentioned oxen. Yeah. And again, you told me something I had never heard before. And maybe you can just kind of do your same rap about where do oxen come from? Who's who's an oxen?
2: Oh, yeah. So the literal definition of an oxen is a four-year-old castrated male that has been taught meaningful work, Uh right? Nowhere in there does it actually specify that it has to be cattle, right? But that's our most often when we think of oxen, we think of cattle, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people think that oxen are their own breeds and that's not true either. They're actually um, just any breed of cow that has been taught meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Um, so example, my team out here, North and Star, they're brown Swiss. That is a dairy breed traditionally. Uh, we Us oxygen people, we tend to recommend dairy breeds. uh, Just genetically, over the course of human history with cows, dairy breeds have been, um, you selected the, the calmest one, right? You didn't ever want to milk the craziest animal, right? So that one got nixed out of the breeding line, right? And so now, we recommend dairy breeds just because they tend to have that genetically inherent calmness about them. The beef cows are kind of like put them out in the field. When they're ready, they're ready. We'll bring them back in. And they're, I mean... Comparatively, dairy cows to beef cows are just like, it's night and day. <laughs> um, so, let's see, what else about oxen? Like, well, what was I, I talking about? I'm sorry, <laughs> I talk about so much about oxen, I'm like, trying to make sure I get Well, exactly I loved what you want.
0: that you said that your team, I think you picked them out when they were just babies. Yeah,
2: okay. So, generally with oxen, it's not just a, we train them when they're adults and then we go kind of thing. We start off when they are babies, right? So... My team, North and Star, I pulled them out of a dairy lot, and a lot of people think this is like, oh man, you're like putting them in this life of work, and you know. But I, I like to reframe it in the other way is that I got two male cows out of a dairy. Those don't really work, <laughs> <laughs> so I actually saved their life. I, they would have gone to be a McDonald's hamburger by now. Probably. And so these two are actually I saved them. I pulled them out and and I live with them every day. I go out there and I, you know, I pet them, they know their names, they come when they call, they have collars with ID tags and bells on them, you know? They're just like any dog to me, uh, I treat them very well. Um, but yeah, I started off when they were two days old and you basically, you pick who's on what side and you stick to that. There's a couple times that you can say, all right, we switch," but you try to do it as early as possible. Uh-huh. Right? And so historically, a lot of times um, oxen teams were named uh, names like Bright and Lion or Bright and Star. And you'll see this a lot in New England. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll find ox teams that are named this. And that actually correlates historically because your teams would be named Bright and Lion. If you had a Bright that got sick or injured or killed, died somehow you would go to the next farm, and you'd ask them if they had another bright. Do you have another bright? Because that means that they're on a very specific side of that yoke, uh-huh. they're trained to that side of the yoke, and you could plug those teams in. Uh-huh. They actually learn how to turn according to where they are in that yoke. Wow,
0: so so if you're, Bright and light. It's going to go yep. left to right. Are you standing in front of them going left to right or are you behind them? You
2: actually left? stand right at their shoulder. So you have what's called your near and your off ox. Your near ox, if you were to look at the oxen like head on in the yoke, the near ox would actually be on the right. Okay. So you're standing it and it's right, his shoulder is right there at your, hip, your right hip. Mm-hmm. And you, that's where you do all your working from. Right, And then you can slowly train to go to their back and then train from the back so that they're walking ahead of you. And that's like the next step on the training cycle. But we start at the hip, and then we start rotating to the back.
0: So when was the first day that you put them into a yoke?
2: Uh like specifically or
0: yeah like the first day that you really started training or just getting used to that feel
2: so they were two days old so they were born may 1st 2019 and may 3rd 2019 they were in a yoke
0: no way yeah so it must have been a tiny (laughs) yoke
2: it's a tiny yoke we measure our (laughs) yolks by the uh, neck size of each animal Uh so uh, Yokes go from four inch, which are tiny, about the size of the width of your hand. Uh-huh. That's the size of their neck. Uh-huh. And then it goes all the way up to 13, which is basically the size of your shoulders. That's
1: <laughs> like the, in the neck. The yeah.
2: yeah, Yep, or and that's, that's called the, the bow. Card. And yeah, that's each neck seat of that yoke. Uh-huh. So, and then, yeah.
0: Okay, so you've got two critters <laughs> yep. in this yoke. Mm-hmm. So the width of the
2: yoke is... Uh, is both neck seats plus extra so that they can kind of move around. So they get huge. Yokes will get to up to like six feet across, uh-huh. you know, in these massive neck seats and up to 150 pounds, you know. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and, you, and you have to get the, I, I, I guess but if you start them as babies, they're used to you messing with Putting within. that yoke
2: on. Yeah, that's why we do it from the very beginning is uh, get that yoke on and off as much as possible, get them. Um, what we call the goad, and a lot of people, when they see the goad in the teamster's hands, they think it's a whip. It's not. It's actually a stick that we just touch them with. Mm-hmm. Touch them on the shoulders, and that's just kind of like a come here, go there. It's just a, like a, a tap indication, okay. right? We're not actually whipping them. <laughs> a okay. lot of people are very worried about that. We're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have the goad, tap, 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 and then we just kind of push them around, get them to go where they want we want them to go. <laughs> wow.
0: That's, uh, when are you going to do this again? When, when the are, Oxen? Yeah.
2: yeah like the, uh, like I, I'll i start really on Wednesday again because by next Saturday, we have a demonstration for Father's Day week.
0: Oh. Yeah. How fun. Yeah. Oh, we came the wrong week.
2: I know. I'm so sorry. Oh, but you've talked.
0: And that was Gabe Francisco. And as I say, he was taking time from his uh, rather busy Day and his task of tacking up those horses, in order to take us on a wagon ride. Um, next, out in the garden, I found Kitty Durham, and Kitty was turning compost at the time, so she had some real interesting things to say about sustainability.
3: You know, we've got compost here that's curing. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And this stuff is done so it takes about eight months nitrogen kind of kicks off over there we employ the chickens and the turkeys to turn the compost for us it aerates it so um, thank goodness they're not on strike yeah no and that's what's wonderful about a holistic farm you know where we kind of everybody's got a job is that um, you know they enjoy their natural behaviors of you know turning turning the soil and getting the bugs and you know so everybody's happy, you know? Uh-huh. Now what kind of podcast do you have? I can make sure that my answer is maybe a little more centric. Oh, to what... well, my,
0: my, it's a radio program. It's oh. called Farm and Fiddle. Okay, we're so it actually, is farm-based. Yes, we're the oldest sustainable agriculture radio program on the planet. Beautiful!
3: Starting. Way before we ever used those terms, sustainable and regenerative and, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. They're buzzwords, really, is what I've started uh, to call them. Everybody's they're so got, true. Yeah.
0: And somebody, you know, well... This is just between you and me. I'll yeah. probably cut this out. Yeah. But some industrial guy will adopt them. In fact, it's already happened with organic. Oh,
3: oh yes. It's kind of right. happened It's with all semantics at a certain point. But the questions are, are you doing it right? Are you making sure that the environment is happy and healthy and you're happy and healthy and the animals employed are happy and healthy and then the soil is happy and healthy and then the plants are happy and healthy? So, you know, it's one of those things that we, you know, when we look at what we're doing here, Um, you know, we are continuing the Shaker legacy and that they were some of the first environmentalists, you know, they were some of the first to really care about how their animals were treated, you know, that that was part of their millennial laws. So, Um, and they they understood that it was good to have nutrition in the soil. They understood the importance without really understanding the science behind it. They just knew what worked, you know? Mm -hmm. So today on our farm, we're supporting our Seed to Table restaurant, Uh, the trustees table we also support um, we have farmers market just about to start we have a 20 person CSA that we run and of course educational programming that happens down here as well some workshops and things like that so um, what's really neat about that is the Shakers also educated their neighbors so they would put out uh, catalogs of course they were known for their seeds herbal medicines uh, and so they would release these catalogs teaching their fellow man how to garden successfully and so today, again, we're continuing that legacy of educating, um, hoping that as folks roll through, that they understand where their food system comes from, um, and then at that point, you know, once we start having that conversation of, you know, looking at our environment as a whole, then we can start putting, I like to say, our money where our mouth is, right? So if we don't have people start to kind of wise up, uh, you know, to how their food is grown, and us to really get behind the ones that are doing it right. You know we're looking at uh, some pretty terrible things in our near future. So, um, but you know we we also we donate a lot to food banks. Another way that we really kind of keep that sh- Shaker legacy uh, relevant today, we're we're doing the same things. We're not dressed in historic clothing, but we are certainly using some of the same techniques that our that our Shaker friends did. So, that's so awesome. Tell me your name. Uh, my name is Kitty Durham. I'm the head gardener here at the Shaker Village. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, I'm glad I ran into you. Yeah.
0: Um, well, so right now we're standing next to a compost heap mm-hmm. that looks like it's
3: about I don't know three and a half feet tall. Yeah. Um, and you are weeding it. I'm weeding it, yeah. So um, unfortunately, I didn't get a tarp put over this, so this is our compost that um, we are allowing to cure. Um, So uh, right behind you, I'm sure they can hear the chickens as well. So um, part of what we do as a regenerative farm, as a holistic farm, is we integrate our livestock into our operation. So uh, we have employed these uh, chickens, ducks, turkeys uh, to turn our compost for us, and that's very important. It keeps it aerated in that way. Uh, And so we throw all of our our scraps from the restaurant, which is really, it gives us kind of an edge up uh, and what that allows us to do is keep a closed loop energy system here for the farm. So, because we are supporting the trustees table restaurant with food, uh, we bring hundreds and hundreds of pounds of produce in uh, every year for them to use. They then save all the scraps. We will then throw that into the compost uh, pit here with the chickens. They will do their job of turning it as well as eating up the bugs and the grubs and the weeds and the seeds, keeping it aerated for us. And then once a year, we will dig that out, allow that to cure for eight months so the nitrogen's not too high. And of course, past that 120 days that we need live animals to be off of it. And then that gold will go back onto our garden uh, where it will feed the next season. So that's how we maintain a closed loop energy uh, system here. Um, so. So again, those scraps come out of the restaurant into the compost. The compost then feeds the veggies for the following year. The veggies go back into the restaurant and we're able to keep that energy here on the farm. And uh, as we were talking about just a minute ago, the chickens really uh, enjoy being employed in that way. They're just, we're kind of exploiting their their natural behaviors uh, and they're getting those uh, extra extra bugs and and all the good stuff that comes out of the restaurant as well. So they don't seem to mind.
0: (laughs) That's so awesome. I really appreciate your taking a little bit, li- little bit of time. You know, one thing I noticed as I was driving here is that the soil in this um, part of the country is kind of brown, almost yeah. tan, sandy-looking yeah. clay. I guess. Yes. Yes. Uh, but your gardens
3: are um, at least brown. They yes, might not be yeah. black. But there, there's a couple of them. Uh, so we we keep yeah. uh, we rotate our. our crops through here and I can tell you which one of my uh, th- that which one of these plots are my favorite and for lack of better terms I always call it sexy soil you know <laughs> um, so that's one of the things that when, when we're educating the public too we Um, can walk through here and show. We've added compost to it, but some of our other uh, techniques that we use with a low-till system, uh, we try to as much as possible not disturb the carbon in the soil, the microbiology, and all the uh, wonderful things that they've done in there as well, trying to keep from hard pan happening. Uh, But that's one of the things as we walk through here, and I can look at folks and say, okay, We've talked about carbon, carbon sequestration, what that can do to our climate a little bit. What color's carbon? And you say, oh, I think it's black. And then you look at them and say, what color's healthy soil? Oh, it's black. And some some connections start to happen. So, um, you know, (laughs) some of my plots look great. And then, you know, if you've had a heavy feeder and we've kind of moved some rotations around, some of them don't, but you're right. Our soils here in Kentucky are, are um, clay. Now we do have the added benefit of the limestone here, so that does change our pH a little bit. Um, but that is why, of course, we're known for our bluegrass, and actually, in effect, our whiskey too, or our bourbon, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's a lot uh, at play with that. But amending these soils, I will say, you know, it's uh, clay is a difficult. Any any of the gardeners or farmers that have had to amend um, clay from the beginning, it is it, a lot of work has gone into this. Uh, and this dark soil that you see out here this has been years of adding um, those natural organic amendments and and treating the soil right more than that treating our microbiology right so it's beautiful well, thank you, my dear. That was very wordy, but you know, no, I'm, you did great. I'm also like a super nerd for this kind of stuff. So <laughs> I, I know, could just me be too. like, I could talk soil science forever, you no, know. I know I am too. It's really it's yeah. kind of an addiction. Okay, hope I didn't sound too panty either. Feel like, oh yeah, no, you she was like moving great. and actively weeding. So yeah, no,
0: that's what I like. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I look for is people who are actually I, yeah. yeah.
3: Well, I, I think I also maybe just come across as like you know this crazy hippie nerd sometimes when I get on my yeah. tangents out here and. You know, it's gone both ways. I've also had, you know, given tours and stuff where I've said the word climate change and people have walked away from it. Oh! So, you know, I'm like, i like, I don't know. It, that's one of the things that I love about this, though, and we, we teach a lot of kids and a lot of adults too, it, it, it might just spark them. You know? I know. I and mean, that's the thing, like I said, if we don't start putting, I know. You know, educating people in that way to change the way that they eat and, you know, put their money where their mouth is and change this, agriculture is a huge impact on climate change. Oh, kid. I so agree with you. I,
0: do you think people are getting smarter? I do. And I that's do one of the
3: things that I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, it's it's been helpful. Um, Kiss the Ground, that documentary coming out, was a huge... I appreciate you. <laughs> Kiss the Ground coming out, and people really kind of understanding that uh, from a documentary standpoint. Mm-hmm. I know there was one, uh, The Biggest Little Farm, and mm-hmm. then you've got, like... Cowspiracy and food <laughs> ink and all these people are watching those and they're starting to kind of be like, okay, this system, this makes sense. You know, this is, this is why it's harmful, you know? And mm-hmm. even, i told them too, if we teach somebody just, you know, how to plant something and grow a grape or a cherry tomato plant, that might be a kiddo's only fresh veg all summer long, you mm-hmm. know, and it's growing in a pot in some apartment somewhere, whatever it looks like, you know, yeah. we may have some impact on food, food insecurity. Like yeah. that's a huge deal, yeah. you know? First of all, we're not gonna have a future if we don't do anything about agriculture and the carbon and that's it. But we are using the same techniques that they did in the past to change things like food insecurity and to mm-hmm. you know so this is the future no I'm not wearing a bonnet doing it but it's important and and we are you know it's based in the past and, and it's going to bring us our future so yeah,
0: I totally agree I totally agree
3: yeah well thanks for yeah, your welcome. Time. thanks for listening to me yeah. chat on I'm, I, I hope it didn't sound too too crazy and nerdy as I healthy <laughs> right Kitty. You're very welcome. I really And what's the
0: name of it again? I'm
3: excited. Oh. You said it's going to air when?
0: Um, a, a week from Wednesday okay. at 6 p.m. Central. Cool. And um, and I'll make a podcast of it, too. Okay, awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll send you all the links. That'd be um, great. so that's it our road trip to Shaker Village near Harrodsburg Kentucky uh you just heard three interviews you heard Ryan Fielder music coordinator music conservator you heard Gabe Francisco draft animal coordinator and Kitty Durham farm manager uh Farm and Fiddle airs on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Central Time from Columbia, Missouri. We are air on 89.5 FM in Columbia and on the World Wide Web at KOPN.org. We are the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow and the oldest radio program on the planet to talk about sustainability, going back to 1999. Our theme song is Beaumont Rag, played by Nettie Van on fiddle and Bart Ramsey on piano and guitar. I'm your host, Margot McMillan. Thanks for listening.